Once again, this morning, I direct your attention to Genesis chapter 3. We resume our studies in the book of Genesis this morning again. And our text is going to be from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The first part of this chapter, we have the account of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, and then of the interrogation that took place between the Lord and Adam and Eve because of what they had done. And now, after the Lord has spoken to the first pair, we read these words, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now before we look at these words, let us pray for the help of God once again. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that from the very beginning of creation we have this prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And we do thank you that you did not leave your creatures for centuries in their sins, suffering the just due of what they had done, but that right away you came and you sought them out and you questioned them and you said things to them that must have stuck in their minds for many years after you spoke these momentous words. And we pray that likewise these words would be burnt into our hearts and into our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we cannot preach these things and practice these things without your help, so we cast ourselves upon you for the help of the Holy Spirit even now. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Calvin and Hobbes provided one of the great cartoons of the 1990s because it so perfectly captured the growing no-fault ethos of that decade and an ethos that I would say also continues to this day. The cartoon is mostly a monologue by the little boy Calvin and it's addressed to his friend, his tiger friend, Hobbes. And it begins with the two of them walking along and Calvin saying this, nothing I do is my fault. And the next frame shows Hobbes scratching his whiskers as Calvin bemoans his situation. My family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actuated. And then we see Calvin, eyes shut and arms crossed, doing a poor me. My behavior is addictive functioning and a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. And then Hobbes responds, a little wisdom from the tiger, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. 
And the strip then ends with Calvin walking on and saying, I love the culture of victimhood. Well, from Adam and Eve on down to the 21st century, criminals and even presidents, victimhood has been the fantasy land of refuge for those who imagine that they can blame their conduct on others instead of themselves. Hard-earned money is being spent on Freudian psychologists who provide a couch or a recliner for their patient and then spend the half hour probing their history, all the ways in which their client has been victimized. But while buck passing has become more refined with psychological mumbo-jumbo in our day, buck passing was invented long ago at the very dawn of creation by Adam and Eve, as each of them tried to pass on the responsibility for what they had done on another. And after they had sinned, in a nanosecond, Adam and Eve became dead in their trespasses and sins. And when God came to the garden for their daily time of fellowship, he gently probed concerning what had happened. He gave them an opportunity to confess their sin, to repent, and to come clean with him. But instead of doing so, right away they went through the victim charade and Adam points his treasonous finger to the woman that God had given him and even at God himself. And then the woman pointed her finger at the snake. But holding our breath as we read on and wondering what's going to happen, expecting now the hammer of judgment to come down upon them immediately and crush them without remedy, we observe instead that God turns to the serpent and has words to say to the serpent rather than to them. And as we wait to see what God's going to do next, we notice that he approaches the serpent very differently than he did the two. In the verses that we read a moment ago, we notice that when the Lord came to deal with the serpent, he doesn't question the serpent about what he had done and the reason for it. I'm convinced that the main reason why God approached the devil differently was because God had no design of mercy for the serpent. He didn't say anything that would bring that serpent to repentance for his sin. I'm convinced that he had no design for this arch enemy of God and mankind. He did not make a covenant of grace with Satan and his fallen angels. And in his unimpeachable sovereignty... God passed by all of the fallen angels and he chose instead to redeem a host from among the masses of fallen humanity and not fallen angels. And unlike his gracious questioning, therefore, of Adam and Eve, in his interaction with the serpent, he didn't ask the serpent the kind of questions that he asked Adam and Eve. He had approached them with no, with no thunderbolts in his hand. He had asked them the kind of gentle questions that should have led them to repentance. But he asked no such questions of the serpent. And Is this not a remarkable manifestation of distinguishing grace? What reason can be given for this than the, the reason that God had given to Moses? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God's interrogation of the first parents, this was a sign of mercy. 
And when God chides our consciences for what we have done, it is with a view to leading us to repentance over our sin and leading us to faith in the only one that can bring us forgiveness and peace with God, even the Lord Jesus. So if I'm speaking to anybody this morning that's come into this place troubled over your sins, your troubling of heart is not a manifestation of God's rejection. It's a manifestation of God's tender mercy, causing you to be troubled over what you have done or the habits that you are wrestling with. And this is not a sign, you see, of hardness of heart that leads to damnation. If you are troubled over your sins, you may be hopeful, therefore. If God meant to destroy you, he would have left you alone. He would have dealt with you just like he did with Satan, without any word to lead you to repentance. And as he did with the serpent, he would proceed right to the sentence of judgment. Now you will have noticed from your bulletins that the title of this sermon is The First Curse and the First Promise. Now if you also glanced at the main points listed in your outlines, you will also notice that they all pertain to the serpent. And now maybe some of you might have thought, well, I can understand how these points about the serpent pertain to the first curse. But where, what about the first promise? I don't get it why this sermon is about the first promise and then it's all about the serpent. And the answer to your question is that the first promise is hidden in the first curse. And while the sentence is in the form of a curse that was announced to the serpent and this was terrible to the serpent... It was encouraging to Adam and Eve and is encouraging to us. Because for our first parents, it must have been like a ray of sunlight that in the midst of the darkness and the terror of that hour in which they had separated from God and God was surely to now be their judge. This was like a ray of light that came into their dark hearts. Now they can understand that Satan, who had pretended to be their friend, was their worst enemy. But now they could see that he was also God's enemy. And they could see that God was determined to overthrow that enemy. He was determined to destroy that enemy. And therefore, these words to the serpent, there was a wonderful hint that God was determined to raise up one that would be their deliverer. One that is called in this passage, the seed of the woman. And by him, Satan's head would be bruised. And through this bruising, the race of mankind would be unspeakably blessed. Now our text, it contains, therefore, the first gospel sermon that was ever preached. What a sermon it was. Yahweh Elohim was the preacher. And the whole human race, as well as the prince of darkness, was the audience And as I proclaim these words to you this morning, it seems that I do so in the language of the holy angel that came to the shepherds watching their flocks by night and said to them, Behold, I bring to you glad tidings of great joy. These words contain good news. They contain the first gospel promise of a Savior who would come to our apostate race. Now, this is certainly an astonishing development that this great gospel promise was delivered so soon after the first transgression. 
before God pronounced any sentence upon the first two offenders, in the midst of his words to the serpent, he gave them a gospel promise. And before the woman had been condemned, condemned to painful travail, this does take place. And before the man had been sentenced to hard labor, God uttered these blessed words. Truly, mercy rejoices against judgment. Now allow me for a moment to pull back the curtain so that all of us can see what's going on. The day in which Adam and Eve fell was a day of sadistic delight for the serpent. His was the joy of which dark minds are capable. Satan had indulged his malice and gratified his cruel appetite. He had destroyed part of God's good works. He had introduced sin into the world. He had stamped his own image now upon the human race. He had recruited new forces now to join him in rebelling against God. And therefore he was filled with fiendish and hellish glee. But now God steps in, changes the whole scene. He takes up his quarrel with the devil personally with him. He tells the dragon that his great quarrel is not with man but with him. He makes it clear that he's going to deal with the fiend himself. And he informs the slithering snake that there was going to come a day when from the womb of a woman whom Satan had deceived, a champion will arise who will, in spite of that wound that he suffered from the serpent, will crush the serpent's head. It's one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture. It would be impossible for me to cram into one sermon all the great truths that are found in these two verses that I read. And in these words the, that are given to the serpent, there are, however, five important realities that we're going to attempt to set forth. And because of the time allotment that we have, we don't try to, try to make, make all of you fall asleep. We're not going to cover all of these five points. We're going to cover the first two and introduce the third point this morning. But I want you to notice with me, first of all, the serpent's irreversible condemnation. Now in the first half of verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. Now when we read this, the announcement of judgment after this on Adam and Eve, we read that God cursed the ground for Adam's sake. But we don't read that God cursed Adam. We don't read that God cursed their persons. But here in verse 14, God's curse rests on the person, upon the reptile which Satan used to deceive Eve. And in the next verse, we read that the curse that fell on the one who controlled the reptile fell upon Satan himself. And this curse, it's typical of prophetic language it addresses first the object or the person and then moves beyond the object to the originating source. And that's what God does in this place. He first deals with the reptile that Satan used, the snake, and then he went personally after the devil himself. Well, the cursing of the snake is especially emphasized here in verse 14. 
And this is consistent with the fate of other animals in the Bible that fatally injured humans and were therefore to be put to death. Exodus 21, 28 states, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. And beasts also that were used for immoral purposes were to be put to death. Leviticus chapter 20. And this wasn't because they had sinned and were recountable in that sense, but because they had been abused. They had been used to abuse men and women that were made in the image of God. And every animal was made for man and was subject to man, its head. And therefore, any perversion of this order called for judgment. So that's why animals used for unclean purposes or animals used to kill, they were dealt with in a very severe way in the Old Testament economy. But the Hebrew word that's translated cursed, and the curse comes first of all here upon the serpent, the Hebrew word translated cursed in our text is one of at least six different words in the Hebrew, six different Hebrew words that, is all, that are also translated curse. But there, and so there's a particular word here that's translated curse, as we read in verse 14, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle. And the particular word that's used here is found 63 times in the Old Testament. And in 12 of these occurrences, the word is used as an antonym, and an antonym is an opposite, as an antonym of bless. So you have bless, the opposite of curse. In Genesis 9, for example, Canaan is cursed while Shem is blessed. In Genesis 12, 3, God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is why reputable Hebrew scholars sometimes translate this particular Hebrew word with the English word ban or exclude. To ban somebody is to shut them out from the particular blessings enjoyed by those who are blessed. Instead of being blessed, they are shut out from that blessing. That's what the curse means. And this idea is prominent in God's words to Cain after he had murdered his brother. Just look over in the next chapter, chapter 4 and verses 10 and following. And notice what we read there. After Cain has murdered his brother, God comes and asks him, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, and there's the word, you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your blood's, brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. So you see the point here. He's cursed. And the meaning of this curse is that he is shut out. He is banned from the blessings of the earth. He's a fugitive and a vagabond, shut out from the blessings God had for his people. So the idea that's conveyed by the word cursed in Genesis 3.14 is the idea of banishment in the place of blessing, as the blessing especially was there in the garden. Now all of animate creation 
would be banished from the fertility and the harmony of the garden. But here in verse 14, we read that the serpent was cursed or he was banished. It could be translated more than, it says, or above, as some translation puts it, all the rest. Notice how it's put. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. So his exile from all the blessings of God was permanent and it was irreversible. It was eternal being shut out or banned from blessing. It was eternity being under the curse of God. So here is also an eschatological element in this curse. It points to Satan's future. It points to his eternal defeat. And as the word translated curse has the idea of banishment, this points to Satan's eternal banishment from heaven. In Revelation 22, we have a description of the new heavens and the new earth. And in this new heavens and the new earth, the tree of life. Remember the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? The tree of life grows profusely on both sides of the river. It's a description of Eden restored. And included in the description of that place are these words. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants will serve him. They shall see his face. Revelation 22 verses 3 and 4. No curse, but the opposite. They will see God. They will have the blessings of Eden restored to them. It's the opposite of banishment. And then in verses 14 and 15 is the contrast between those that are blessed and those that are banished or cursed. It's made explicit. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates unto the city. There's the blessed ones. But here's the cursed ones. Outside, the banished ones. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now all of this, dear people, is exceedingly practical. In most places in the Old Testament where a curse is announced, it's a prophet that announces the curse in God's name. But in this place, God himself announces the curse. And this makes this curse emphatic. So dear struggling saint, here's a truth that should be encouraging to you. He whom we have to contend with, this devil who tempts us, this one that comes to us as he did to Jesus in the wilderness as we read a little while ago in our scripture reading, this one that comes to you tempting you at your weak points when you're hungry perhaps as it was with Jesus or in your, some other situation. This one that constantly looks for opportunities to tempt you. He is a banished one. Banished forever from the blessing of God. And to you who love the Lord Jesus and struggle with sin, there's a sense in which what God says to Abraham applies to you. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Satan is cursed as he seeks to curse you. And because of this, he hates God with an implacable hatred. And for the same reason, 
He does all that he can to bring you under the curse by leading you to apostatize from God. But just as Balak could not curse those whom God had blessed, Satan can't bring the curse of God down on you because you trusted Jesus who is forever blessed. And in him you have the blessing. And in him you have the one who has been the seed that came eventually and crushed the head of the serpent. But notice this. We should learn from this. The curse of God rests upon Satan and on all that he seeks to offer you. And we need to remember this when we're tempted. This is why we pray, lead us not into temptation. With him, everything he offers, it's just as it was with the fig tree that Jesus cursed. The curse of God curses and blasts the fruitless evil spirit, and it withers away. And this is Satan's shame. This is your strength. So the next time you're fighting with Apollyon, the devil, here's a sharp arrow that you can use against him. Tell him he is accursed of God. And what he does, and what does he have to do with you who are blessed? He's under God's curse. He has no business dealing with you. And he can't curse those who are blessed of God. He whom God blessed is blessed. And he who is the ringleader of evil, on him the curse of God abides. He's cursed indeed. This is a prophetic uh, word you see of the downfall of Satan and all that rally to his cause. We get very discouraged, I think, when we see those that revel in a lifestyle that God says in abomination to him. It's grievous to see it paraded on the newscasts and on our streets. We're grieved when we see them parading themselves down the street in the most lascivious manner. We're grieved when we see our nation honoring those who live in this kind of filth, as God calls it, honoring them for a whole month. Mothers get Mother's Day and Father's Father's Day, but they get a whole month. We're grieved when they get a special party on the White House lawn. We're grieved when the Sisters of Indulgence are invited to Dodger Stadium so that they can carry out the most blasphemous parodies of Christian symbols and ordinances. We're grieved when we see these evidences, you see, of those that that live under the curse. We're filled with grief when we see these things. Our souls are vexed. But take heart. These things which Satan and the world seek to turn into a blessing, they count as their blessing, they're under a curse. They won't prevail. They won't win out in the end. That which God has cursed is forever cursed. It will not prevail. It will someday be judged. And whatever you're tempted with sin, remember this. That which appears so enticing to you at the moment can never be a blessing to you. Mark it down. It can never be a blessing to you. You see, the serpent, he tried to convince Adam and Eve that what he had to offer was the real blessing that they're missing out on. And the serpent, along with everything that he presents to you as a source of blessing, it's under a divine curse. And that which God has cursed can never be a blessing to you. 
All sin, you see, has a curse attached to it. So keep far from it. What about false doctrine? It's also under the curse. Stay away from it. And there are things on display on the internet which are too shameful to speak of. Don't allow that which God cursed to enter into the eye gate which enters then into your soul. And likewise, don't give in to the idea that to get ahead in the world, you've got to shade the truth a little bit here or there. Or you've got to fudge the numbers a little bit for the company. Or you've got to tell a little white lie, supposedly, when they make the phone call. Remember, you're not to use the, 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 the things that the devil offers to get ahead. Remember Achan's wedge of gold. And remember Achan's Babylonian garment. He thought it would bring a blessing. It was under a curse. And if by means of evil you rise to wealth and honor and ease, you will discover that all your gains, they have had a burning curse resting upon them. Young people, the pressure is great to conform yourself to the speech and to the conduct of those that are the servants of the devil. Gaining popularity with those that are outside the sphere of God's blessing, this cannot possibly bring you blessing. Satan would tempt you, young people, that your whole life is going to be ruined if your peers think that you're a weirdo because you don't think and talk like them. And so you've got to kind of join in with them and laugh at their jokes and say what they say, use the words they use. And if you don't, then you're going to lose all your, your friends and you'll be rejected. You, you'll be a little rear, weirdo. And I, I suppose there's words that... An old guy like me doesn't even know if that are being used nowadays to describe such a person. And you don't want to be whatever they are saying that it is nowadays. It's all, though, under a curse. Don't think that you could be blessed by partaking in that which God has cursed. Don't imagine that you will ever truly be blessed by watching filthy videos, using filthy language, listening to filthy music, or reading filthy books. It's all under God's curse. Well, these are just a few of the lessons that we can glean from the serpent's irreversible condemnation. But now I want you to notice with me in the second place the serpent's conspicuous degradation. Something conspicuous is, stares you right in the face. And the degradation is the humiliation that he came to. In the last half of verse 14, God says, On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And both of these curses are symbols of humiliation and defeat. Now this is set forth in two parts. His degradation. In the first aspect of this degradation, it's expressed in these words, on your belly you shall go. Now here the serpent is cursed in this mode of locomotion, how he gets around. And we ask, well, does this mean that the serpent once had legs, but then God kind of chopped off the legs right then and just made him a snake? We wonder, if, is, is that what happened? 
well, we can't rule this out. Or does it mean that he walked uprightly even, perhaps? Well, we can't rule it out. But Derek Kidner, in his commentary, he suggests, I think, another possibility. The crawling is in this place is more symbolic than it is to be taken literally in terms of something that happened to the outward appearance of the devil, or the serpent that he used. And he points out that in Genesis 9.13, after the flood, when God says that as a sign of his covenant promise never to flood the earth again, God set a rainbow in the clouds. But this may not be that necessarily that this is the very first time that a rainbow had appeared in the heavens. Prior to that statement, as sunlight would, would stream through the little particles of moisture in the air and reflect it at different angles and therefore the different colors of the rainbow, uh, this could have happened beforehand, just as it happened afterwards. But the point is, you see, it now has a special meaning. He has set this rainbow in the clouds and he now tells them, I want you to think about this, that this is a pledge that I will not flood the earth again. And prior to that statement, as sunlight passed through these droplets, maybe they saw different colors. We don't know. But now God takes perhaps what has already taken place and he gives it new significance. And in the same way, whether by having its mode of locomotion changed or having a new significance attached now to his slithering, this is mentioned as a degrading feature of the serpent. On your belly you will go. Now this mode of movement, it seems to be a picture of the way that Satan moves around. It's not with upright dignity of holiness, but with the groveling of a creature that has to slither around subtly, lest it be seen. It's one of the reasons why we hate snakes, is because if we walk through tall grass, we can't see them. And we are afraid of them, therefore, especially venomous ones. And this is what they do. They are subtle, they, they slither around. And his descendants, they likewise resort to the same posture. And here I'm speaking spiritually as well as physically. When I listen to politicians that defend their evil policies in an obviously disingenuous manner, when I hear news commentators put their so-called facts on a torture rack, stretching them beyond recognition, I'm amazed that more people don't recognize the slithering manner by which evil is being defended. It's serpent-like, you see. Recently I heard an analyst use a word that caught my attention. The word swarmy, or smarmy, I should say. And, uh, you know, when you hear a word you're not familiar with that much, you look it up. And I found out this means excessively flattering, ingratiating, or servile. It's a perfect description of people that don't say anything or do anything in order that they might be accepted in the woke crowd. And they want to intimidate everybody you see to have to do and say everything just like they do and butter them up and, and cozy up to them in order that they might be accepted in that crowd. Smarmy, I think, is a perfect word for that kind of behavior. And isn't this a perfect description of the way the devil operates? When men and women reject the truth of the word of God, They've got to go around their, their work, their, write, their books they write, and their arguments that they use in an underhanded, 
duplicitous, groveling, smarmy, serpentine way. Upon their belly, so to speak, they go. Now, whether it's the politician seeking votes, the political activist putting his spin on everything, or the actress seeking fame, when they resort to various methods of perverting the truth, like their master, the devil, on their belly they go. The service of sin is a mean and despicable vocation, dear people. Once glorious in heaven, Satan has been cast out now. He's under the curse. And now he resorts to cringing and crawling. And his seed, his offspring, find it impossible to escape his slithering ways. So when you're tempted to sin, remember its original instigator. All the ways of sin are groveling. The polluted entertainments of the world powerfully tug at your heart. And what about that which consumes so many hours of your time on various internet platforms? I'm not going to mention them by name, and frankly because I don't know much about a lot of them. I don't have time for a lot of it. I hear things, but I'm not certain about what's being used. But I would just throw out this challenge, and especially with those of you that are more in tune with all these things that are now available and use them more than I do, measure what you consume hour after hour. Measure what you consume and what you think about with this standard. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Philippians 4.8. Now far too much that is on the internet doesn't come up to that standard. And I fear that too often this generation, and us older guys in, in other ways as well, we are being molded instead of by, God, by Paul's high standard there in Philippians 4, by the dribble that is the waste of, at best, a waste of time, and at worst, the attitudes and thoughts, and instead of lifting us higher and higher, they lead us down, down, down. And once you give in to evil, you go down and down until you're like the evil one. And the curse has been upon him. And the curse is upon his belly-like ways. The more you follow his example, the more it will be true of you. On your belly you will go. The second manifestation of the serpent's conspicuous degradation is set forth in our text at the end of verse 14. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now this visual image, it conveys something that's unmistakable. If a creature is slithering around in the dust, whether he wants to or not, he's going to be eating dust one way or another. Of course, this doesn't mean that dust is the preferred diet of snakes. That's not what is being said here. It's plain that these these words are mainly to be understood symbolically rather than literally. 
In several places, the Bible uses the image, though, of eating dust to express humiliation. Speaking, for instance, of the Messianic king in Psalm 72 and verse 9, the psalmist says of this king, his enemies will lick the dust. It's a picture of absolute subjugation. They will lick the dust. In Micah 7, 17, we read concerning the enemies of the Lord, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. So this image that the devil you see under the curse is going to lick the dust of the, eat the dust of the earth all of his days. It, it depicts, you see, the condition of somebody that's utterly defeated, of somebody that is humiliated. And so in all of our struggles against sin, in all of our struggles, dear people, against the instigator of sin, we need to remember that our foe has been conquered by a great champion. And we're going to get to that in our next sermon more than, than in this sermon. He's been conquered by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Satan is a chained enemy. He is a subjugated enemy. His power has been broken and he knows it. And with respect to his great scheme, he has been utterly subjugated under the foot of Emmanuel. When he met our Lord in the wilderness, as we read earlier in this hour, he sought to slither into Jesus' heart with his serpentine temptations. But Jesus made him eat the dust. When Jesus came into contact with Satan's demonic horde, Satan cringed before him. He implored him that he would not torment him before his time. He was made to eat the dust. When he saw Jesus on the cross, he thought he had accomplished his dastardly purpose. But when he heard the, 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 the triumphant cry, it is finished from the words of our Savior. He knew to his eternal horror that he had only fashioned for Jesus the opportunity to redeem millions upon millions of souls and to snatch them out of his kingdom. And worse yet, remembering the curse of Genesis 3, he knew that he was doomed forever when he saw Jesus finish that work. What a mouthful of dust he ate on that day. And on that day, there was no more wretched creature than the devil. And when he thought he had won at last, he discovered to his horror that the bleeding and dying Jesus, the seed of the woman, he had just dealt his kingdom a death blow. For three days he watched the tomb of Jesus anxiously. But when he saw the angel roll away the stone, Jesus emerged triumphant as a great conqueror. He was forced to lick the dust as a defeated, degrade, degraded renegade. When the apostles then proclaimed the risen Lord Jesus far and wide, and he began to see the nations being brought under the scepter of the King of Kings, he remembered these words again, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And when you're tempted to sin, dear people, remember these words. If Satan experiences any pleasure from sin, it's the most degrading and unsatisfying kind of pleasure that can be. Dust is his meat. As Spurgeon puts it, there is nothing satisfying in the pleasures of rebellion. Satan still plots and schemes against Messiah's reign. 
He still invents new heresies in order that he might divide and conquer in the church. He still seeks to persuade millions with one lie after another. He invents one false philosophy after another. And ever since Jesus died and rose again for 2,000 years, he has been seeking to deceive and to destroy. But what satisfaction does he get from all of his work? There's a certain satisfaction that holy and good work gives us. But what satisfaction does Satan have? For all of his wearisome labors, what does he get out of it all? As a reward for his hellish labors, he's been compelled, compelled to eat dust all of his days. So if you're one of Satan's servants, know this. If you're outside the seed of the woman, you're still unconverted. Know this. As long as you live in sin, you're the devil's child and you will eat dust. You will not be satisfied. If you sell your soul in order to obtain the wealth of the world, even if you're successful by the standards of the world, you'll discover that your Wall Street portfolio, your gorgeous home, your Mercedes-Benz bring you no satisfaction. You will discover that those who eat at Satan's table eat dust. And whether you pursue fame or whether you pursue power or pleasure, you will discover that in the end it amounts to nothing but dust. Satan has never been able to evade that ancient curse. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And he is far more brilliant than you are. He's been figuring out all kinds of ways. He's tried everything for thousands of years. He's more inventive about how to maybe get his way than, than you are. But you can expect no better fare than your father the devil. You will never be satisfied. He never will be. And neither will you. If you don't give this up, if you don't surrender your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus and repent of your sins and cry out for forgiveness and for grace, you will eat dust all the days of your life. I only have time to introduce our third heading, the serpent's implacable opposition. Something that's implacable is impossible to bring to peace. Now, we read of this in the first half of verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, in the Hebrew original by way of emphasis, the word that's translated enmity is the very first word in the sentence. And there's nothing very obscure about the meaning of this word. It means in Hebrew exactly what it means in, in English. The term enmity, it obviously means that one party is the enemy of the other party. And the noun form, it occurs five times in the Old Testament. And in each of these cases, it signifies hostile intent. Hostile intent of such a nature that it leads to murder oftentimes. And here God announces a new order that, that's going to take place. From this point on, there's going to be extreme hatred and animosity between these two parties. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
And this animosity will be so great that there will be a life and death struggle between these two parties. So the words of our text tell us that there will be an implacable enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his seed and her seed, or his descendants and her descendants. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And this, my friends, is a manifestation of divine grace. Because you see, up until now, the woman and the serpent had been on friendly terms. They had conversed together. Eve had taken the, the, the devil's temptations. And she had acted upon them. And at the time of the temptation, she had thought that the serpent was her friend. And she was so much his friend, you see, that she takes his advice. And she takes his advice even to the point of defying God's command. Thinking the serpent's a better friend than God is. In fact, she's willing now to believe bad things about the creator. All because this wicked, wily, slithering serpent has sinuated these evil thoughts into her heart. But now this friendship is, is, is showing some signs of cracking. Because after Eve, after Adam blamed his wife, and God then turned to Eve, and, and he asked Eve, well, what is this that you've done? She says, the serpent beguiled me, and I ate. The friendship of sinners, it doesn't last very long, my friends. And here we see already that the one is blaming the other. They're not friends in the same way anymore. And how is it that this took place? It's because the Lord God graciously stepped in and he graciously takes advantage of the quarrel. And he says, I will make this disagreement now greater than ever. I will put enmity between you and, this, and the woman. You see, Satan had counted on this first couple being his friends, his recruits in his rebellion. His descendants also they would be, the descendants of Adam and Eve, they would be confederates in evil, he thinks. But this is what God says. I will break this covenant with hell. I will raise up a seed which will war against Satan and his seed. In our next sermon, we're going to explain further the significance of what he's talking about when he talks about the seed. But for now, let me just tell you that, the, that these words anticipate two sets of descendants. The seed of the serpent being the line or the descendants of the ungodly. And the seed of the woman being the line of the godly. And eventually there's going to be one person who is the seed par excellence of the woman in a very special sense. A one person who will do battle with the serpent. It's a prophecy of redemption. But we're going to have to leave the details for our next sermon when we come back to this text again. But I wanted to at least introduce that because this is what gives us hope. This is, the, this is the ray of light in the midst of this whole passage. This is the gospel that's being preached, even here in the Old Testament. But I want to ask you, as we've described these two sides, this enmity that's, been, that's taken place, what side are you on, my friend? What side are you on? Are you the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman? Are you still being deceived that somehow you'll be satisfied with what the devil offers you, what the world offers you? If you do this, you're talking like your father and his, his children you are. 
And do you say the God's God's hard on us? And he, he's strict, and he he gives us these commandments that just make us all miserable. And he doesn't want us to have any fun. And that's why he does this to us. Well, that's the kind of lie that, that Satan convinced Eva and Adam. Of. He just he just isn't very kind, and he he's keeping things from you. And he still uses the same the same lie, and he uses it to keep you in his his kingdom, in his family. And do you? Imitate him, moving about in sneaky ways, trying to cover up what you've done. Are you given, you see, to craft, you see, and to, to policy and, and saying smooth things, smarmy things, to, to get your way in the world? Which side are you on? Are you on the devil's side or God's side? Jesus' side. As you go into the haunts of, of evil, if you go into the forbidden places on the internet, if you go into other ways in which there is sin being trafficked, whatever place you might go or whatever you might use, what is it that draws your heart out continually to, to what is con- under the curse? Is it something that's going to satisfy you? Is it something that's going to make you happy forever? Oh, my friend, if that's the case, remember on your belly you're going to go and you're going to eat dust all the days of your life. That's going to be the result of it. And worse yet, it'll be this way forever. So so leave the devil's side and come to Jesus' side. Come to this one that, that proved himself to be the real champion, to be the real one who offers that which is good and blessed forever. Come you. Without money, without price. He doesn't ask you to do all kinds of amazing things to be received by him. What he wants you to do, my friend, is to confess your sin. Come clean. Stop making up excuses like Adam and Eve did. Stop making all these negotiations with the world and with the devil. Come clean. Make a clean break with the world and with the devil. And come to Jesus' side. Believe in him and believe in what he did on the cross, that he might be your savior, that he might be your Lord, and that you might enjoy true satisfaction forever and forever. This is what I offer to you. This is the gospel here in the Old Testament. Oh, receive this glad tidings of great joy, even a gospel preached on the darkest day that the world has ever had. Receive it even now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that these remarkable words that are filled with such vivid imagery you have spoken to us this morning, we trust. And we pray, Lord, that we would not reject these words that you speak unto us, that we would not seek to evade them, that we would not seek to make up excuses for defying you and continuing in our old ways. Search us and try us, we do pray. Help us as your people, we plead, O Lord, not to go back to these old ways, these ways of the evil one, these ways of duplicity, these ways of of evil and uncleanness, Deliver us, we do pray, from that which is only going to destroy us and only that that which is only going to bring us heartache in the end. 
Help us to repent and help us to be right with you, any of us, O Lord, that are truly your children and yet have been straying from you. Have mercy upon us, we pray. We pray, too, for anyone in this room that does not know you, has not yet repented of sin, is still holding out against you, is still dabbling with sin and still trying to come up with excuses to why not to believe. Oh, Lord, break, break their, their, their proud hearts. Break their, their, their excuses and their rationalizations and bring them to understand the fatal choice that they are making. Deliver them, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, for it is only by the Spirit that they will ever be delivered. Bring them to come to this one, the seed of the woman, who eventually came and was the champion of his people forever and ever. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.